Well, good morning. My name is Sean, and in case you didn't know that, I am, again, the, the uh, new pastor-elect, I think is what we're calling it, until next week when I'm officially installed, and we are very grateful uh, to be here. And one thing I want to say very plainly from the very beginning, I'm a history buff, and I want to use an example uh, from history. When Thomas Jefferson took over for Benjamin Franklin as the ambassador to France during the Revolutionary War, he was not quite that well received because he was so different from Benjamin Franklin. And so he, he pulled the leaders aside and he said, you know, Mr. Franklin is irreplaceable and I am not here to replace him. I am merely his successor. And I want to be very clear to say that Harry is just irreplaceable and I have no intentions of trying to replace him or anything he has done. My prayer is that together, standing on his very broad shoulders, we can make Sycamore a more, more, more beautiful place than it already is. And so with that in mind, I would like to get to know as many of you as want to get to know me. Um, I have given the church office complete control of my calendar. And so if you want to sit down, if you want to grab coffee, if you want to grab breakfast, if you want to grab lunch, if you want to grab a beer, man, email the church office, call the church office, and they will set that up and we will sit down together. And I would like to get to know you. Also, uh, boys and girls, kids, I do speak directly to you several times in the sermon. So you're going to want to make sure you have the children's bulletin there. Uh, if you'll notice on page 10 at the bottom, there is a children's translation there just for you. We'll be referring to that. And for the rest of you, uh, I preach from the ESV. I did not realize that was a change until I was told it was a change. So I apologize for doing a change without communicating it first. But we will have the ESV translation always printed in toto for you on page 10. And then also as well, um, the ESV has a wonderful app in the App Store that is uh, very readable, very useful. I highly recommend you can do that, and that way you could read along on your smart device as well. So that's enough about housekeeping and about me. Let's talk about Jesus. So what I thought I would do is I thought I would start my time here with you guys, kind of having laid the foundation of the gospel as Harry has done. Let's talk about what a church is. Let's talk about some major themes of a church. We're going to look at three of them. One this week, and then next week, uh, my friend John Mark Patrick will be preaching at my installation, and then I'll pick up again with number two and number three in the following weeks. But for, day, to, for today, we're going to talk about hope, and we're going to use this Hebrews passage to see that Jesus gives us hope. So if you would, would you please stand as together we look at God's word from Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. 
We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us in such a way that we can know you. And so we ask, Father, that even now you would send your spirit to show us more of Jesus in this text. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. So we're going to talk about hope. And as I said, we're, we're going to talk about the hope in Jesus, which is a very religious thing to say, which is a very church world thing to say. And so one of the things that I'm passionate about is, is being in relationship with non-Christians and for us to actually make a difference in our community. So, you know, if you're in conversations with your non-Christian neighbors, you know, if maybe you're in the backyard meeting them over the back fence, our Christian neighbors need hope. Just last year, the New York Times had a front page article that said the U.S. suicide rate surges to a 30-year high. In the article, sociologist Robert Putnam said it proves that society has got a crisis of hopelessness. It's hard for a culture to endure with no real hope for the future. See, hope is a longing for the transcendent. It's something bigger than this material world. It's a connection to that, but our culture is unabashedly secular, isn't it? So what what that means is that it likes to deny the transcendent and focus on life here and now. So we live in this contradictory time of this internal thirst for hope, but an external pressure towards hopelessness. Philosophers call that a cross pressure. And and those cross pressures leave us dissatisfied, exhausted, kind of just living in a sense of malaise. Young people here, teenagers, you guys get this better than your parents. You may not talk about cross pressures, but you live in an extremely cross pressured culture. And so you guys have summed it all up with a simple sound. Meh. But we're going to see that we need hope. And that the Creator Himself offers us hope in the gospel. We're going to use this Hebrews passage to see the hope that God offers. So we kind of just jumped into this thing. Let me give you some context here. Way back in Genesis, the very beginning of all things, God starts to focus his redemptive activity on a certain family. A man named Abraham is the head of that family, and God comes to him and makes him some huge promises. And to assure Abraham of the reality of these huge promises, verse 13 tells us that God swore on himself. Eventually, the promise came true, or as verse 15 says, it says, it obtained the promise. It's actually better translated in the original as Abraham arrived at the promise. It was a destination. Abraham arrived at the hope God had in store for him. And that's kind of how I want to focus our time today. So if you'll look with me in your bulletin, one of the things I like to do is I like to sum up every sermon with a theme. We use that to kind of organize the worship service around and do the children's bulletin and some other things. And so our theme for today is this. Life is a journey, and the hope of Jesus guarantees our destination. So let's talk about a guarantee, first of all. So verse 16 reminds us that to formalize any agreement, we swear by a higher power. Today, contracts are enforced by the government. For ancient cultures, they believed that the supernatural world heard, cared, and enforced their vows. So they took oaths very seriously, which is what... Verse 17 shows us here that God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to be the supernatural background of this promise. Verse 17, we could translate it, he pledged himself. So if you go to a doctor's office 
and you're going to fill out that new patient form. There's a lot of those in our future um, for now. You know, you fill out your name, you fill out your company, you fill out your insurance form, and the very next line is the guarantor, right? It's who's going to pay. If the insurance company doesn't pay, if you don't pay, who's going to pay this bill? And when God comes into Abraham and says, put my name right there, I'll pay. God makes himself the guarantor of this covenant. And why does that matter? Why should we care about that? Because the guarantee, that transcendent connection, is what gave Abraham hope, something bigger than him. You see, in the Bible, hope comes from the reality of who God is. The God who what? What does the Bible tell us? God loves humanity. God is, runs after wayward, broken people. That's the whole story of Scripture, and it's that God who says, I pledge myself that this will come true. And that is our hope as well. You see, in the hope, or excuse me, in the doubt and the fear that plague our lives, in the fear of the unknown future, are we ever going to get past all this COVID stuff? The unchangeable God guarantees His unbreakable promise to pursue and comfort a wayward people. That's hope. That God rescues his people. Boys and girls, young people, I want you to think about all the stories you're told sometimes. Especially when you were younger, right? The stories that begin once upon a time. How often does the story then begin with things messed up, but it looks back to a past when things were great, and then this hero comes along and he fixes it so people in the story can live happily ever after. It's a very common story. And that story pattern is in our culture because that's the story of the Bible. That's the Bible's pattern. It starts out, everything is great, it has been lost, and the hero comes to fix it to give us a happily ever after. Boys and girls, I want you to get this. So look with me, if you would, at your verse 17. Here's how I put this so you could get it. Verse 17, since God really wants us to believe his promise, he swore to die to make it true. You see, kids, God wants to bring us a happily ever after to fix what is wrong through the hero, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just have to fight a dragon. Jesus had to die. And Jesus dying and being raised again is the promise of God, and that's the basis of our hope. You see, for all of us, if the Bible is true, then we are creatures who thirst for hope. We thirst for a happily ever after because the Creator has hardwired us with this desire for hope. And in His love, God then comes and He promises to fulfill that hope no matter what. That's why our culture craves hope. They're created to crave hope. C.S. Lewis pointed out in his essay titled Hope, that was a hard one to find, And he says this, I'm paraphrasing, he says, you know, lots of people say, if I only had more of whatever it is, I'll be happy. But those who do actually get more, more wealth, more power, more fame, more stuff, whatever it is, they begin to realize it's not enough. They're not happy. And Lewis goes on to say that what we do then, and we know this is true, is we blame the things for not fulfilling us. Well, I need a better spouse. I need a better house. I need a better job. Then I'll be happy. See, but Christianity says, no, you were made in the image of God with eternity in your heart, and so the trinkets of this world will never satisfy you. See, in spite of what our culture says, there's something non-material about us, and so we need a non-material promise. Thus, God guarantees hope based on who He is. It's a transcendent guarantee, and that guarantee meets our need for hope. 
You see, for our non-Christian neighbors, if you're talking to them, you know, they express this desire for hope as well. Let me just give you one quick example. Our culture tends to believe that the times are getting better, that history is moving towards a better future for humanity. That's why our cultural leaders, when something happens, they disagree with us. What's the phrase they use, right? That's on the wrong side of history. And people in our socioeconomic demographic tend to bristle at that phrase. But instead of bristling, we can actually see that we can engage the gospel when they say things like that. We can engage our neighbor on this issue of hope, and we can ask, why are you so confident that history is going to get better? Where's the guarantee? Because, see, Christianity offers one. Now, our non-Christian neighbors may not believe in that guarantee, but them expressing this hope gives us an opportunity to say, hey, I, I agree that I think the world is going to get better, and Christianity guarantees it. What's your guarantee? Is it worth really believing? You're probably thinking, I'm glad I'm not your neighbor. Those are interesting conversations to have. But see, our culture has no guarantee. And they feel that gap, and we have the hope of Christ to help meet that need. So Christianity offers a guarantee. The second thing I want us to see here is that the guarantee is actually our hope. Look with me at verse 18. We're going to see here God has stacked the deck for us. Verse 18 says this, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So the two unchangeable things here in context are God's person and God's promise. So God's person and God's promise are the guarantee of our destination. And therein lies our hope. The Christian's hope is not in political power. It's not in our religious performance. Hope is based in the person of Jesus, the person of God and the promise of God, the gospel. And to make sure we get that, there's this incredible picture here in verses 18 through 20 that most of us miss because it's ancient and it's nautical. I'm not a boater, but apparently this Hebrews congregation was. So what I want you to do to get into the mindset of this, I want you to think of of an old-time sailing ship. Okay, you got the picture in your mind? You're probably thinking of something along the lines of the USS Constitution, you know, about 250 years old, big ship, sails. No, that is like modern technology. Think way more ancient. Think little, think flat-bottomed, think oars, and a little bitty sail, and this thing never left the sight of land. That's the ships you would see all over the Mediterranean Sea at the time that Hebrews was written. That's what they would be familiar with. And those boats do not do well in storms. The first page of the captain's manual said, if is a storm, make for land. That was the plan, period. But the problem was, most ports of the day had a sandbar at the very beginning of them acting as a breakwater. They either had it there naturally or they used slave labor to create a sandbar there. That way behind it you'd have a calm harbor. And the problem was in the big seas of a storm, the ship would run aground on the sandbar so it could never get into the safe harbor in a storm. What's it going to do? Well, they had these little boats made for this purpose. They would, they would, a sailor would get into the boat. They would put the anchor in the boat, and he would row that thing across the sandbar, and he would drop that anchor into the safe harbor, and the ship would just hold secure to that anchor in the safe harbor. Well, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that was just a riveting description of ancient nautical practices. Thank you so much. Why are you telling me this, right? Because that's the image of verses 18 through 20. I'm going to use the phraseology from verses 18 through 20 and describe that again. The boats were what? Fleeing for refuge to the harbor, 
to drop a what? Sure and steadfast anchor there. The larger vessel would then hold fast to this anchor set before them. All because, why? Because that little boat took the anchor in there for them. And that little boat was called, wait for it, that little boat's called the forerunner, which is what they called Jesus in verse 20. See, Jesus is what gets the anchor into the safe harbor. Jesus is what holds on to us during the anch- as the anchor in the harbor. What an incredible picture of the gospel, right? In the trials of life, in our regrets, in our remorse, in the difficulties and disappointments what a, what, that we all have, the only real hope we have is to flee to our Creator for refuge, like a ship flees to a harbor. But we can't. Because we're in rebellion to the Creator. We can't make it over the sandbar to the refuge of God's presence. We're blocked from the harbor. But Jesus is the forerunner. He's the one who entered into the harbor with the anchor, drops the anchor, and holds on to us when we can't hold on to Him, guaranteeing us our destination. How beautiful the picture is that? Maybe that's not doing it for you. So let me, let me give you another example. So I was um, kind of a larger child. Um, and so Pastor Sean never got picked first for the teams. You know, me and Rudolph never got picked for the reindeer games. Um, except for one day a year, field day. On field day, we had the tug of war against the other class. And on field day, they'd be like, come here, big fella. And they would get that rope, and they would put that loop around me. And they'd be like, okay, tons of fun. You just stand right here. So I, I've trained all year eating ice cream for this, man. I just stand right there immovable as the big kid at the end of the rope. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that when we're in the tug of war of life, when heartache, depression, evil, our failures and regrets are trying to pull us into hopelessness, we turn around and we see that Jesus is the large kid standing immovable on the end of the rope. And that gives us hope. Yes, in my inaugural sermon, I did say Jesus is the large kid standing at the end of the rope. See, because that's the gospel. That's the Christian's hope. It's not a sentiment. It's not a delusion. Christian hope in Jesus is historical. Jesus lived in history. He died in history. He was resurrected in history. He was seen by thousands of witnesses in history. That shows us there's something beyond the grave. There's something transcendent beyond this material world, and that anchors our thirst for hope. Christian hope in Jesus is also personal. Christianity tells us that when we die, we we do not just become part of the great circle of life. Sorry, Lion King, right? Christianity says, no, look at the resurrection of Jesus. He was a person after death. He's the firstborn from the dead, other parts of the New Testament say. And if you believe in him, you will be a person forever too. The Christian's hope is tangible. So I'm also a sci-fi geek. And... For those sci-fi geeks like me, you know, we're like, Star Wars is so awesome. Okay, but forget Star Wars. You know the other one, Star Trek? Remember that really, really bad last Star Trek movie in the late 80s? Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. It's really bad. But that title actually comes from Shakespeare. It comes from Hamlet's famous to be or not to be soliloquy. And in that soliloquy, Hamlet says that death is an undiscovered country no traveler comes back from. See, but Christianity says Hamlet's wrong. Jesus has gone to the undiscovered country and returned and united to him by faith. We can follow him on that same path out of death into the loving arms of our creator. 
See, in a culture that's dead inside because of hopelessness, we have Jesus as our unshakable hope, the anchor of our hope. Boys and girls, I don't want you guys to miss this. So look with me at your translation again. Let's look at the very last part, okay? Verses 19 and 20, which says this. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast... Oh, sorry, that's the real translation. Let's do mine. Here it is. There you go. Our trust in God is strong because God himself holds on to us since through Jesus we get to sit in God's lap. Boys and girls, it would be weird for you to sit in my lap so let's just agree from the very beginning, we're never going to do that, okay? But it's not weird to sit in mom's lap, is it? It's not weird to sit in dad's lap, is it? That's mom, that's dad. That's your lap, really. And look how beautiful Jesus is. What the author of Hebrews tells us is that in the gospel, every one of us is orphans because of our failures, because of our selfishness, what the Bible calls sin. And Jesus comes to us orphans, and he says, hey, my dad can be your dad too. He takes us by the hand and he pulls us right up into God's lap. And we belong and we're embraced and we can rest. That's the image of verses 18 through 20. That's the Christian's hope in Jesus. And that hope is not just for us. That is the hope for the world. Here's what I mean by that. Just one quick example. Right after World War II, an African-American professor gave a lecture at Harvard about Negro spirituals, you know, those old songs um, that, they, that, that they made that they would sing while they worked. He was earnest to defend the idea that rather than keep the slaves submissive, as every white scholar of the time said, this professor said, no, the heavenly ideas in those songs were believed, especially the resurrection of Jesus. And because those ideas were believed, it gave the slaves hope, and endurance, not a weak passivity. You see, right now in our culture, so many people, especially young people, are concerned about being woke. They want to see greater justice. They want to see greater equality. And this ancient text shows that Christianity speaks right to that contemporary desire with hope. So rather than being threatened by woke ideas like many of us are, We who know Jesus can rejoice that woke ideas are actually a point of connection to the gospel. Because see, what this professor pointed out and what history shows is that those truly downtrodden, those truly suffering injustice, are actually lifted up by the hope of Jesus. Not when he's a symbol, but when he is believed as a historical reality. So even if you would say you're unsure about Christianity, if you care about the things in this world getting better, Things that will require people to sacrifice, the environment, social justice, inequality. You should want Christianity to be true. Because people with real hope, like what Christianity offers, are able to sacrifice today for a better tomorrow. So I just want to wrap up by asking a question. Where is your hope? Truly, where is your hope? Because the Christian concept of reality, as proclaimed in the gospel, posits a world anchored in transcendence, saturated with hope. Because if life is a journey, then hope is the destination that Jesus offers. You see, our culture cannot offer anything, cannot offer a destination. Only an endless journey, a constant wandering amongst different options. And that's exhausting. It's not satisfying. 
But Christianity offers real, historical, personal hope in Jesus. It's a hope guaranteed by his resurrection. And it's a hope that will satisfy your deepest inner longings. And anchored in that hope, you'll have the resources to make the world better. So whatever it is you base your hope on right now, can it make those same promises? Because Christianity can. Because it's guaranteed by God himself. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we look at passages like this, Father, we, it's almost too much. It's embarrassing how extravagant you are in your love. I mean, the idea that Jesus is such a strong anchor into your very presence that it's like he pulls us up into your lap is incredible. And part of my heart wants to say that's not true, and I know people here have the same thing. Father, would you tear down our stubbornness and our sin, especially those of us who already know you, would you tear that down that we can see the beauty of your love, the beauty of your son, and the depths of how much you care for us. And Father, we pray for those here today who may not know you. We pray, Lord, that as you have promised, you've said that as Jesus Christ is lifted up, he would draw all people to himself. Lord, we hold you to that. We pray that even now by your spirit, you would do the work of drawing people to Jesus. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.